Tracy McCauley. I'm Nathan Wayne. And I'm Liz Wong. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to CardioScripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. Today on CardioScripts, I am so excited to be introducing Dr. Steve Antoine joining us today to talk about the Strong HF trial. Dr. Antoine is an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist who joined the advanced heart failure team at the Mike Lee DeBakey VA Medical Center after he completed his fellowship training in 2021 at the University of Florida in Gainesville. He's originally from Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and did his medical training at the American University of the Caribbean in 2013, where he tutored physiology, which ignited his love for cardiovascular physiology and heart failure. He completed his internal medicine training in 2013 at SUNY Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, where he received many teaching awards, including Resident Teacher of the Year. He completed his cardiovascular disease training at the University of Florida in Jacksonville in 2020. At the University of Florida, he was nominated for Fellow of the Year, received research grants for his paper on Peyton Foreman or Valley shunting in heart failure patients, which also won him, of note, a first prize as a research abstract presented at the annual Innova Advanced Heart Failure Symposium in 2019. Dr. Antoine is board certified in internal medicine, cardiovascular disease, nuclear medicine, echo, advanced heart failure, and transplant. And he loves soccer and is fluent in three languages. So Dr. Antoine, thank you so much for joining us on CardioScripts today. Thanks for having me, Liz. And quick question, what are the three languages you're fluent in? French, Creole, and Spanish. I, I, I speak French, Creole most fluently, and English I learned when I came to the States. And then Spanish, I should know as much Spanish as English, but, uh, but uh, with lack of practice, uh, English took over. Oh, that's amazing. Well, I am currently trying to learn Mandarin, so maybe offline I can ask you some tips on learning a new language. Once you uh, get one going, you, you can get the other ones. The other ones are easy. You right. say that, but you also speak three languages <laughs> fluently. So, <laughs> well, jumping into the trial. So, as I mentioned, we'll be talking about strong HF today. The purpose of this trial was to assess the safety and efficacy of rapid up titration of treatments before discharge from an acute heart failure admission and during the weeks following versus usual standard of care. So in terms of the design, this was a multinational, multi-center, open-label, randomized, parallel group study. And they, as I mentioned, were assessing the safety and efficacy of up titration of GDMT guideline recommended heart failure medical therapy which included in this study beta blockers, ACEs, ARBs, or ARNI, and MRAs. They randomized patients in a one-to-one fashion to either usual care or intensification of treatment with, again, beta blocker, ACE, ARB, or ARNI, and MRA. And patients were included if they were 18 to 85 years of age, admitted to the hospital within 72 hours before screening for acute heart failure, and they were hemodynamically stable, so they had to have a systolic blood pressure of 100 or greater, and a heart rate of 60 or higher, an elevated NT pro BNP of greater than 2,500, and a greater than 10% decrease with, of that concentration between screening and before randomization. And these patients had to have not been treated with optimal doses of heart failure therapies within two days before anticipated hospital discharge for acute heart failure. 
patients were excluded if they had a clear intolerance to high doses of any of the agents that they were going to be up titrating, MI, unstable angina, or cardiac surgery within three months, or if their index event was triggered by a correctable underlying cause. So examples of that include AFib with RVR, uh, sustained VTAC, infection. Patients were also excluded if they had an EGFR of less than 30. Of note, there was no inclusion criteria based on ejection fraction. Patients in the usual care group were followed up according to local practice until 90 days after randomization, where they were followed up with then. In the high-intensity care group, though, the first dose adjustment occurred right after randomization, and the goal was to adjust patients to at least half of what was defined as the optimal dose in the trial. And then they were assessed by a study team for safety as well as dose titration at baseline, weeks one, two, three, and six, and then at 90 days. And up titration to full doses, if it was deemed safe, should have been reached by two weeks. There were safety visits one week after any up titration of a medication. In terms of outcomes, their primary outcome um, was a composite of a 180-day heart failure readmission or all-cause death. And they had a few secondary outcomes as well, changing quality of life at day 90, 180-day all-cause death, 90-day heart failure readmission, or all-cause mortality. There were about 540 patients who were randomized to each arm. The study was terminated after just under four years due to a larger than expected difference in the risk of the primary endpoint between groups. We'll get to that in just a second. But patients that were included at baseline were about 63 years of age, about 61% were male, 21% black, 77% white. The mean systolic blood pressure was 123. And of note, none of the patients who were enrolled were from North America. They were from Africa, Europe, Russia, and South America. About 29% had diabetes, 29% a history of ACS, 85% a history of heart failure, 31% were NYHA class 2, 42% class 3, and 22% class 4. And it was about 50-50 between patients who had ischemic versus non-ischemic heart failure. 68% of patients included had an ejection fraction of less than 40%, and 33% of patients included an EF of greater than 40%, and the baseline EF was 36%. The oral meds that were taken before randomization, 56% uh, of patients were on an ACE or ARP, 8% on an ARNI, 36% on a beta blocker, 95% on an MRA, and 96% on a loop diuretic. In terms of the outcomes, the primary endpoint occurred in 15.2% of those in the intensive arm and 23.3% of those in the standard arm. The relative risk was 0.66 with a 95% confidence interval of 0.5 to 0.86. When we look at the two components of the primary endpoint, all-cause death at 180 days occurred in 8.5% of those in the up-titration arm and 10% of those in the standard arm with a relative risk of 0.84 and a 95% confidence interval of 0.56 to 1.26. And heart failure readmission was 9.55% occurred in those in the intensive group and 17.1% of those in the standard arm with a hazard ratio of 0.56 and a 95% confidence interval of 0.38 to 0.81. So that is an overview of the strong HF trial. And there's a lot of great stuff too in the supplemental appendix that I didn't get to. But I think let's start off, Steve, with just what are your overall thoughts of the strong HF trial? 
I'd have to say the strong HF trial is a study that we all were very excited about. The null hypothesis of the study is very relevant to today's practice, uh, you know, in heart failure care with, you know, our, you know, guideline-directed medical therapy and our, the four pillar medications that we use. There's always this question of how fast do we uptitrate medications? And everyone does it differently, right? I, I uptitrate my ACE inhibitor RNA first because I, I, you know, I think that, as, you know, as address the hemodynamic effect of dropping the blood pressure and therefore dropping the afterload for the heart to be happy, uh, get rid of the congestion before I start up titrating a beta blocker. And other people do it differently. Other people care more about the dose responsiveness of beta blocker, which have been studied compared to ACE inhibitors. So uh, other people will up titrate the beta blockers. Uh, a lot more aggressively. And there's some people that think that beta blocker of titration, because it's not well tolerated, uh, patients tend to feel lousy uh, on, you know, high dose of beta blocker support to improve compliance. They'll up titrate the other medications first and do a slow up titration of beta blocker. So there's always a question, you know, of what do you do? Do you do it fast or do it slow? And we practice voodoo basically without evidence. And that's what we've been doing on how to do it until this trial, which is meant to study aggressive uptitration of medication and, you know, guideline-directed medical therapy, whether or not, you know, it's going to have effect on, you know, on, on, on clinical outcomes. So it was very relevant study, and and you know we'll talk more about you know how it was done and my my different critiques on the study. The other thing that I liked about the study is the patient population, which I thought was you know pretty heterogeneous. It's 20 percent black, for forty percent females, which in a heart failure um, study that's that's unheard of. So. They they did pretty well as you know as far as going and assembled a pretty diverse group of patients. Um, although, as you mentioned, uh, North America was not studied, so there's that caveat. Things I didn't like about the study, uh, I don't like that it was open labeled. So therefore, the patients knew that they were part of the controls, and the patients that were being studied knew they were being studied. So. Of course, uh, and of, they had to do it open label based on how the study was designed because of the frequency of the follow-ups. Uh, the patients that were in the study group um, were followed up very closely. So for that reason, they had to be open labeled, but there's two problems now. One is we don't know what intervention we're looking at. You know, we're following these patients very closely and of titrating the medication. So are the results because of the increased follow-ups or are the results because of the medication of titration? So that's a, a, a problem there. And two, uh, you know, there's all sorts of bias when patients know that they're being studied. Um, you, know, they, you know, there's the Hawthorne effect when the patients know that they're part of the study group, so they don't want to disappoint the investigator. So they're going to most likely say they feel better. They're going to report positively on the patient-reported outcome uh, measured. So a lot of bias, I would say, with, with the study in general. Yeah, thank you, Steve. So second question, is the baseline percentage of patients on guideline-directed medical therapy, or GDMT, consistent with what you see here in the U.S.? It's not consistent. You know, I think 
this granted this was all comers that you know went to the hospital with decompensated chf so we don't know if uh, you know what the social situation of these patients whether or not they have primary care or they have a cardiologist already so most of these patients were not on guideline directed medical therapy i believe less about two percent of these patients were on the targeted dose of metoprolol you know for example and our patient population i I, even though we do not do a good job with you know with uh, you know putting patients on what they're supposed to be, but we I think we have a more sick patient populations that are already on uh, on medications. So I think the study populations run less medication than than usual. One thing I will say though that I was impressed with we're at baseline ninety five percent of patients were on an MRA. Which is is interesting. Yeah, which is more than what we see in some other heart failure trials and how the percentage of patients who are on MRA. So I thought that was like pretty interesting. That's something that stood out to me when I was looking through the baseline characteristics. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting as well. And I was wondered because you know there's the, the that study, the Topcat study, which looked at MRAs, and it was studied in that general you know, area and similar patient population, same, same countries. So I wonder if there's just more MRA distribution over there. I don't know, but that was very interesting compared, especially when you compare it to the other medication. So it's not that the patients in general are not getting meds. It's just a lot of them are on MRA, but then most of them are not on beta blocker or ACE inhibitors. So Steve, you, you touched on this, but I don't know if you want to expand. What are your thoughts on how aggressively they titrated up the medications? And I think a, a big question for me after reading this trial was just, especially when thinking about beta blockers, because these, these patients came in with acute decompensation. So just maybe your thoughts on that. I think that's where lies the biggest issue with the study. I like the intention you know, up titration within two weeks of discharge, which, you know, this it's very aggressive, the intention. But, and that's what we wanted to know as clinicians. We wanted to know how aggressive can we be. So, of course, we want a study that starts very aggressive and, and we know, okay, that works. So, therefore, you know, each physicians, each clinicians can um, tailor how they do theirs, but they know that aggressive works. So, we wanted aggressive. However, Based on the hemodynamic response or the chemical response, um, you know, when we look at the blood pressure change, but from baseline to, you know, after or at 90 days and at uh, 180 days, there's not that much uh, change uh, in the blood pressure. Uh, I think on average, there was a five millimeters of mercury change in uh, blood pressure from, you know, and we look at a group that was not on, you know, Arnie before to 50% of the uh, patients uh, at 180 days being on the full targeted dose. And we're talking about the full targeted dose, 97 slash 103 for Arnie, uh, you know, so uh, lisinopril 40. So you would expect a big blood pressure drop. Same, same with uh, beta blockers. You know, there's a large number of patients which weren't on beta blockers to start. Um, but after, you know, the 180 days in the study group, a good proportion ended up being on beta blocker. But the average drop in heart rate was, 
was, I think, was five or ten, less than ten, which is very unexpected, which I think undermines the whole study. To me, you question where the patient's even taking the medication. And and that's that's important and relevant because that same study I mentioned earlier, TopCat, uh, and if you know, and, and a lot of people know, there's a certain part of Europe that they found out after the fact. TopCat was a study meant to look at spironolactone, and it didn't show a positive outcome in the study. But what we found later is just based on a lot of the blood that was collected, that a lot of patients were not actually taking the medications that they reported they were taking medication. So so then, you know, I, so I have this in the back of my mind when I look at this data, when I look at the blood pressure change, when I look at the heart rate change, and also when I look at the blood work, the, the chemical response. For example, there is not a big change in uh, the potassium. Uh, the potassium change was from, from 4.2 to 4.6. And that's not a change that would expect you would expect you start somebody on spironolactone or a plurinone. So yes, it was well intended, but I question, and I think a lot of people question whether or not that they achieve the doses that were reported, or the patients did the patients truly take the medications that they said they they took given these responses. So Steve. Do you think the close follow-up they had in the strong HF trial is something that is feasible to replicate in practice? Absolutely. I, I think I think so. In fact, when I look at the strong HF trial, you know, even though the trial was meant to study intensive or aggressive medication of titration, but you know, based on the hemodynamic and the hemodynamic response, I think this trial actually studied more the, the, the aggressive or intensity of care. Um, I think that's probably what I got the most out of this trial. I'm not too convinced that the medication changes are what caused a positive outcome. I think it was all in the follow-up. They had four follow-ups in two months. And I'm not sure that the patients were take, you know, took the medications as intended, but they 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 did come to their follow-up. And to me, I think that's that's what is key, and that's really what I got out of this study. I think now with with the amount of people and and you know and part of the workforce, we have pharmacists, we have uh, nurses, we have uh, nurse practitioners, we have, uh, you know, physician assistants. So we have the tools to create something like this. So it, I think the days where the patients had to come see a doctor every week are, are the, you know, are the past. Uh, I think now that we, we have a full workforce of clinicians, we should utilize that. And and we're trying to create this now where we practice at the VA, um, where we, we can have the patients when they're discharged, followed up with the nurse practitioners on, you know, within two weeks. And then their, follow, their next follow-up will be with uh, you know, a pharmacist. Um, and then come back and see the nurse practitioner and then go see their cardiologist or primary care physician or whoever. So you can easily reproduce what was done in a study 
Uh, and they don't have to, they can also see a nurse who just go over their medications, check their weight, make sure their, their vitals are stable. So I think a lot of the intervention from the study was in a patient follow-up. So in the subgroup analysis, um, which again, just to point out, this is all hypothesis generating, but just in looking at the subgroup analysis, seemed like there was more benefit in patients with an ejection fraction greater than 40% for the high intensity care group. Um, do you have any thoughts on the difference that EF may have made in the findings of this study? Yeah, I, it's hard for me to draw a hypothesis based on this study because first, I don't believe that patients were taking the medications as intended. It, it doesn't make sense because, you know, as we know, these medications are mostly effective on HFREF. So, so it just adds, it, it further adds to my suspicion that this was just a fluke. And I'm not sure. Uh, I believe that the patients benefited more from an, a, a higher intensity GDNT so before I can draw a hypothesis, I'd love to see that the medications had the hemodynamic effects that they would normally do, and then stratify between the two EFs and, and see what effect it has on EF less than 40% versus EF above 40%. But in this particular study, based on that, I, I, th- I think personally that this was a fluke. So Steve, we've talked about a lot with a strong HF trial, but any final thoughts or takeaways you want listeners to, to walk away with? Yeah, the final thoughts and takeaways, yes, I, I, we definitely need more study uh, looking at this, uh, answering this question. Uh, this is a question that is very relevant to how we practice, how we treat heart failure patients. We want to know how fast how, and how aggressive we should be with the medication of titration. However, I think the strong HF trial, uh, based on the response that uh, the the study group had with the medications, um, and also one thing I forgot to mention that the the control group was not the control group did not did not have any follow up, um, and they also did not. Uh, were not on a lot of the you know baseline at baseline they were not on good medications. So it's very easy to prove a positive outcome if you have a group that you're studying and you're 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 seeing every week and 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 making some changes. But I think this study looked mostly at the intensity of care and showed positive outcome with an intense care group with uh, increased follow-up and quote unquote medication change. But the biggest thing is I, I think we definitely need more studies that can show with intensity of treatment and with outcomes showing that these treatments were intensified, hemodynamic you know, outcome and chemical outcome, and then showing that uh, there were uh, benefits and uh, hardcore primary outcomes like you know, mortality or heart failure hospitalization. So those are the studies. That's the study I'm looking forward to. Well, Dr. Antoine, thank you so much for taking time to join us on CardioScripts today. Oh, absolutely. It was a pleasure. Invite me anytime. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. 
The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.